Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirabbilalamin. Wassalatu wassalamu ala asyrafil anbiya'i wal mursalin nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Amma ba'd. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Allahumma anfa'na bima 'allamtana wa 'allimna ma yanfa'una wa rizqna 'ilman tanfa'una bih. Amin ya rabbal alamin. Alhamdulillah, thumma alhamdulillah. We continue continuing tonight with our sirah lessons and last week we stopped the biography or this life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama where he uh, went to Bani Sa'd correct he went to Bani Sa'd to be nursed and to be looked after in the desert and we explained why the, the hikmah behind this and, and why the Arabs used to do this and the woman that looked after him was what was her name Halima al-Sa'diyya. Her name was Halima al-Sa'diyya. And we then explained that she eventually returned to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's mother Amina and encouraged her to have him return with her because of the barakat that he brought into their lives, into the life of Halima and her home, her household, with her husband uh, Al-Harith. Right, so we explained this last week, and so what happened was is Amina then sent Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam back with Halima and her husband back to their tribe. Okay, this is where we stopped the story last week. So the next topic tonight is Hadith to Shakti Sadrihi Sharif sallallahu alaihi wasallam, which is the incident of the splitting of his chest. His noble chest, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The incident where his noble and blessed chest was split open. And this incident happens, or it happened whilst he was in Bani Sa'd. What is Bani Sa'd? Bani Sa'd is the tribe of Halima where he was staying in the desert. So this happened over there and it's mentioned clearly in narrations in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad and the Mustadrak of Imam Al-Hakim. And so forth. So the hadith reads from Utbah ibn Abdi Sulami that a man asked Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, How was your early days? Tell us about you, your early days, things that happened whilst you were a youngster, and so forth. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said that, and he mentioned this incident, and he says that my nurse was from Bani Sa'd ibn Bakr, my child nurse, Mahadinati, meaning that that woman who was nursing him, right? If you, uh, so his child nurse, he says, was from Bani Sa'd ibn Bakr, this tribe. Bani Sa'd ibn Bakr. Bani Bakr. So he says, I then went with one of her sons out to the sheep and to the cattle that they had who were grazing. So they would, as youngsters, they would go out and, you know, play with the sheep and shepherd the sheep and so forth. But we did not take anything with us. No provisions. So they went out in the fields with nothing. And so I said, Ya Akhi, he said to his brother, which is his milk brother now, go and get us some provisions. You know, go back and join me again, but go get us something that we can have with us in the fields. Min indi ummina from our mother. 
When he says our mother here, he's referring to Halima. That is his milk mother. So he says, my brother, he left. And I stayed with the cattle. And then two white birds came. As if they were eagles or vultures, you know, hovering above him. And so one, the one said to the other, Ahua, ahua. Is that him? Is that him? Is he? Is that the one? So he said, Naam. And then the two of them, they came speeding towards me. These two birds then descended upon him swiftly. And they took hold of me and they stretched me out on the ground. Fashakabatni. And then they opened up my, my torso. And then they removed my heart. And then they split open my heart. And they then removed two black clots. Two black clots from my heart. And then the one he said to the other, Bring me some ice water. Thalj is like snow or ice. Bring me some ice water. فَغَسَلَ بِهِ جَوْفِي And then they washed my, in, my insides, my interior. ثُمَّ قَالَ Then he said to the other one, اِئْتِنِي بِمَا إِبَارِدٍ Bring me some cold water. And then they washed my heart. And then he said, Bring me some sakina. Bring me some peace and tranquility. فَذَرَّاهَا فِي قَلْبِي And then they spread it out in my heart. They dispersed the sakina and they spread it out in my heart. And then he said to his to the to the second one again, Hushu Fahasahu, stitch it up, and then he stitched it up. Yani the heart. Wahatama alayhi bihatamin nubuwa. And then they placed the seal of prophethood upon him. And then they left and they and they left me behind. And he says, وَفَارِقْتُ فَرَقًا شَدِيدًا And I became extremely fearful. And I trembled and I shook severely out of fear. Then I returned to my mother, meaning Halima. And I explained to her, but what happened? What, what, met, what I met? And she feared that I was confused or something affected me. That something had overcome me or something had affected me that my mind wasn't functioning properly basically and so she said billah. I seek protection in Allah for you may Allah protect you basically laha ala rahl. so what she did was is she got on top of her camel and she carried me onto this camel with her and I rode or she rode behind me until we reached my mother which mother now? Amina, all the way to Makkah, took him home because she feared now for him. Um, and she said to Amina, have I not fulfilled my amana, my responsibility and my obligations? And she then informed her about what happened. And Amina was not, was not, Surprised by this. And Amina was not overcome by this information. Meaning she could handle what she heard. And then Amina responded and said, Indeed, I saw 
when I gave birth to him, that a light came out of me which lit up the palaces of Sham. So what's Amina telling her? That this incident is obviously something amazing and something strange and something to be worried about, but I knew there was something special about him the moment I gave birth to him. And we spoke about this last week, what happened when, when, when she gave birth to him, a light emanated from her that lit up the palaces of Sham. It reached all the way to Syria. So when Amina experienced this in the first place, she knew. When she heard these stories afterwards, it was not to say that it didn't, you know, it was like normal, but it was to say that she knew there was something great and special about her son, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That's the narration in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. In the narration of Sahih Muslim, which is narrated from Anas ibn Malik, radiallahu anhu, that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was approached by Jibreel. Whilst he was playing with some of the boys, he was out, he was playing as a youngster with some of the, with, with the, with the children. And so Jibreel took him and threw him onto the floor and split open his chest and removed his heart. And he then removed from him a clot. Right, he removed a clot. And then he said, Mink. This, is the sh- this was the shaitan's share of you. This was the shaitan's share of you. Then he washed this heart, his, the, the Prophet's heart, in a vessel of, in a golden vessel, which was filled with zamzama. Then he put it back together, meaning the heart, he put the heart back together, and then he returned it to its place in his chest. Who noticed this? The children who were with him in the street. When they saw this, they rushed to his mother, meaning Halima. They rushed to Halima and they said, Inna Muhammadan qad qutil. Muhammad has been killed. And they all rushed back to find him. Whilst he, when they found him, he, his, his color had changed. This was obviously of the fear that he was going through, that his whole, the color of his complexion, everything had changed. And so Anas, who narrates the hadith, he says that I used to see the mark of that stitching on his chest. The stitch that they put together his chest with, we could see the mark on his chest from that stitching that took place. Um, so the hikmah in these two narrations speaks about removal of these clots from the heart of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and that was the share of the shaitan from him. That was the shaitan's share of him. So this was a way to free him from the shaitan. And this is why in another narration when he speaks about the qareen, that every person has a, has a qareen that is with him from the jinn. And this qareen is the one who inspires you to do haram and so forth. And so they said, Ya Rasulullah, even you, do you also have a qareen? So he said, yes, even I have a qareen. Except that I overcame my qareen and he accepted Islam. This is something similar to what we are speaking about here, that these clots were removed. The shaitan had no power over him to lead him astray. Understand? Um, and Ibn Hajar, he says, the fact that it was removed afterwards is an extra virtue 
and an extra miracle for Rasulullah sallallahu Imagine he was created without it in the first place. Then we could say he was just created like that. But the fact it was removed afterwards, this is something of a greater status. It's something that is of a greater miracle for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So he's left in a state, in the best of states basically, so that he can become the best of worshippers of Allah and that he is uh, the furthest away from the, the insinuations of the shaitan. So he's been protected from the shaitan through this. Right? What was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's age at this time when this happened? When this happened, Ibn Ishaq in his famous book of Seerah, he says that at that time he did not reach the age of two. That he was just under two years old. Right? That he was under just under or just about two years old. Another opinion from Ibn Sa'ad in, in his tabaqat, he says that at this time he was four years old. He was four years old. And he mentions from Halima, he says, Basically that when he was four years old, he would go out with his brother and his sister to the animals and so forth. Right? As we explained. Az-Zarqani in Sharh al-Mawahib, he also says the same thing, that he was four years old at the time. He was four years old at the time. And this is also stated by Al-Iraqi um, and Ibn Hajar and others. Right? So the point is, slight difference of opinion. Some of the scholars mention two years old. Some of the scholars mention four years old. Right? Some of the scholars mention four years old. So this is what happened when he was obviously a youngster. This is what happened when he was a, when he was a youngster. A small boy. Two, four years old possibly. Okay? We know that his chest was split in an, an, another time. It happened again in his life. Okay? In fact, these narrations that mention that this happened four times in his life. This happened four times in his life. The second time was when he was 10 years old. The second time was when he was 10 years old, but this is inauthentic. This is inauthentic, it's not sahih. The third time that's mentioned was when he received wahi. When Jibreel came to him with wahi and said to him, Iqra and so forth. This happened a third time. Again, this is not authentic. This is weak ahadith. Hence, we do not rely on them. The fourth time, which is the second time actually in terms of authenticity, happened when at the Isra and the Mi'raj. It happened when at the Isra and the Mi'raj. So the hadith is found in Bukhari and Muslim, narrated from Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu. He said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that the roof of my house was opened in Makkah. And then Jibreel alayhi salam, he descended fafaraja sadri. And so he split open my chest. He split open my chest. Then he washed it with Zamzam water. And then he came again with a golden vessel or basin which was filled with hikmah and iman. Which was filled with hikmah and iman. And then he emptied 
this vessel into my heart. This which is full of hikmah and iman. He filled it into my heart. And then he sealed it. Then he took me by my hand. And then he ascended with me to the, to the heavens. Right? This hadith is obviously now the hadith of the Isra and Mi'raj. So before the Isra and Mi'raj took place, the second splitting of his chest happened. The second splitting of his, um, his chest happened. Understand? This hadith is clear in Bukhari and Muslim. As for the other two occasions, when he was 10 years old and when he was receiving wahi for the first time, these are not authentic. Hence, we do not rely on them. And it's mentioned by many scholars as well as Ibn Kathir in his Sirah Nabawiyyah. Although, so we say what? It was split twice. As a small boy at the age of two or four, and then at the Isra and, and, the, and the Mi'raj, this took place. Ibn Hajar, he mentioned something important and he says, if we look at all of these narrations that, that speak about the splitting of his chest and the removal of his heart, and other than that, from you know these extraordinary events, these are not normal things, these are miracles, these are extraordinary events. He says, although these things are fard and wajib that we accept, that we believe in them, because they are authentically narrated, right? And he says it's not permissible for anybody to object towards them or to try to reinterpret them to that which makes sense to them, to, so that they can come to some conclusion that, that is you know, that they feel okay with what's actually meant by this is this. No, we have to accept it because it's not something impossible at the end of the day because Allah ala kulli shayin qadir. Allah is ala kulli shayin qadir. He is able to do whatever He wants. Ya'fa'alu ma yasha'a. Allah does whatever He wants. If this is what Allah Azza wa Jal wanted to do, this is not impossible for Him to do. We can argue and say, medically this is impossible, scientifically this is impossible. This is beyond medicine. This is beyond science. Allah yaf'alu ma yasha. If Allah wants to have his chest split open, his heart split open, to be filled with sakina and hikmah and iman and to be washed with zamzam and to clots to be, to be removed, Allah wants that to happen and for him to be in a better state than he was. This is easy for Allah Azza wa Jal. This is nothing for the power and the qudra of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these ahadith, they again show us the protection that was given to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa the immunities that was given to him towards the shaitan. The shaitan could now not overcome him. Secondly, another hikmah in this, some of the scholars mentioned is that Allah opened his chest to Islam. This was done to open his chest to Islam as a religion and as a law, right? Which is the greatest thing a heart can be opened towards. Others have said it is to, in order to fill it with wisdom, hikmah, and iman. As we mentioned, the hadith exactly said it was filled with hikmah and with iman. So there was some hikmah in this happening, in the splitting of the chest. Tayyib, the next topic is khatamun nubuwa, is, is the seal of prophethood. The next topic is the, the seal of prophethood, khatamun nubuwa. This refers to a piece of flesh which was a, a raised, bulging type of flesh that the Prophet ﷺ had. Where was this? Shoulder. Which shoulder? Right, 
left shoulder. Uh, at his left shoulder, right at the back. And there was some hair over, over it as well. Okay? And the size of this seal of prophethood was the size of a pigeon's egg. The size of a, a pigeon's egg. These are the hadith, and we're going to go through these. Um, a hadith. This khatamun nubuwa, the seal of prophethood, is a sign of prophethood. And this was mentioned in previous scriptures. It was mentioned in previous scriptures. As we will get to the story of Bahira, where he speaks about the sign. And also the story of Salman al-Farisi, when he accepted Islam. This will come up later on, inshallah. Right? Also this sign of prophethood, this uh, the seal of prophethood that was found on him, was not there when he was born. He was not born with it. It came about later on. It came about later on. Um, then the, the Sheikh mentions that some of the ulama have said that the wisdom or the secret behind having this seal of prophethood placed by his left shoulder is because that is the, the place of the heart. That is where the heart is, is located, on the left hand side. Right? So that's an easy way to remember it. Where is it? It's on his left side. Because that's where his heart is. And this is because he is protected from the shaitan. So the shaitan cannot get to his heart. This is some of the, one of the secrets that the scholars came up with. Of course, I'll mention the hadith necessarily, but well, they, they came about with the hikmah that they, um, that they thought of. Understand? Imam al-Tirmidhi mentions in his Shama'il, with an authentic chain of narration, from Abi Nadrah al-Awaqi, he said, I asked Abba Sa'id al-Khudri, radiallahu anhu, about the seal of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, yani the seal of prophethood. And he said, Kana fi nashizatun. He said it was on his back and it was a piece of raised flesh. Raised flesh, meaning it wasn't flat. It wasn't like a, if you think of a, a tattoo for example, it's just sketched on, right? Uh, this was something raised. Okay, that's one hadith that we now have that mentions that it was a raised piece of flesh. The second hadith the author mentions is again in Bukhari and Muslim from As-Sa'ibi ibn Yazid radiallahu anhu who said that I went with my khalati, my khalati is my, my auntie to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama and she said, Ya Rasulullah, inna ibn ukhti waji'un. Ya Rasulullah, my nephew, the son of my sister, my nephew, he's not well, he's ill, he's sick. فَمَسْحَ رَأْسِي And so he wiped or he rubbed my head. وَدَعَ لِي بِالْبَرَكَةِ And he made dua for me for barakah. ثُمَّ تَوَضَّأَ Then the Prophet took wudu. فَشَرِبْتُ مِنْ وَضُوئِهِ And then I drank that water that was left behind from his, from his wudu. ثُمَّ قُمْتُ خَلْفَ ظَهْرِهِ Then I stood behind him, behind his back. And then I saw the seal of prophethood which was between his shoulders. Which was like an egg of a partridge. Partridge is a type of bird, a medium-sized bird. So this Sahabi described it as an egg of a, of a partridge, which is a type of bird. That's another hadith. A third hadith in Sahih Muslim. From Jabir ibn Samurah, 
radiyallahu anhu that he said ra'aytu khataman fi dhahri rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ka'annahu baydatu hamamin and he says I saw the seal on the back of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as if it was a pigeon's egg as if it was a, a pigeon's egg that's the third hadith a fourth hadith also in sahih muslim from abdullah ibn sarjas I saw the messenger of Allah or the Prophet وسلم, and I ate with him some meat and some bread. Or he said, Tharid. And then he said, I went behind him and I saw the seal of prophethood between his shoulders. Which was near the top of his left shoulder. Near the top of his Left shoulder, he says, the shape of a, a hand, the shape of a hand with fingers together, with moles on it, with moles on it, right? So this is the type of shape that it had, but it was, had some moles on it, and it was above his, just above his left shoulder blade, just above his left shoulder blade, that's what we know about the, the seal of prophethood. In one more hadith in the Muslim of Ahmad with an authentic chain of narration. Uh, from Abi Zayd anhu who said that I said to, or Rasulullah sallallahu said to me, come close to me. So I went close to him. And then he said, Adkhil yadaka famsah dhahri. Put your hand inside and rub my back, wipe my back. So I did this, he said, inside of his shirt and I, I rubbed his back and I felt the, the seal of prophethood between my fingers. So I asked him about this and then he said, Some hair between my shoulders. Um, so those are some of the information that we get from hadith. So what we know was is, it was the size of a partridge's egg, away, a, an, a pigeon's egg. It was a piece of raised flesh. It had some hair on it. And it was in the shape of a hand with some moles, with, with fingers close together. But it must be much smaller than a hand if it's the size of an egg. And it had some moles on it. This are some of the descriptions that the Sahaba have narrated about the, about the seal of prophethood. Of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Um, then there are again some weak narrations. Some speak about um, that it was it was written upon it. Muhammad Rasulullah. This is inauthentic. Right? Other narrations say that it had a, a mark of a cupping glass. Like for cupping, that type of mark. This is inauthentic. Or like a, a like it had a... Um, Maktub ala Muhammad Rasulullah, that's also weak as we said. Aw sid fa'anta mansur. Some say it, had, it, it was written on, the, on his seal. Go forth for you have been, you have divine support. You have divine support, so go forth. This also is, none of this is authentic. Understand? And in fact, Ibn Hajar says, don't be deceived by what Ibn Hibban was a classical imam of hadith. In his compilation of hadith, what he narrated regarding this, even though he says it's authentic, he says he was rather mistaken. That none of those hadith are relied upon. It's only what we mentioned basically that is relied upon. And Allah Azza wa Jal 
knows best. Tayyib. Any questions so far? On the seal of prophethood, on the splitting of the chest that we've mentioned so far. We move on to the next topic which is the return of the Prophet sallallahu The return of the Prophet sallallahu to his mother, Al-Hanun. To his, his loving mother, Amina. After the incident of the splitting of his chest, what happened was is Halima Sa'diyya she began to worry. She now became fearful for the Prophet sallallahu and she immediately returned him to his mother. She immediately returned him to his mother. At this point, he had reached the age of five. He was now five years old. And so Halima, she narrates and she says that her husband Al-Harith said to her, Ya Halima, Indeed, we, I fear that this boy could have died. He could have been killed by what happened. So let's take him back. You know, rather take him back, return him to his mother before something like that happens. Before something, you know, comes about and happens to him. Let's, because remember, they kept him for longer than usual. Correct? It's, usually they were taken to be breastfed and so forth and so that they grow up for a few years in the desert. But when she took him back, she insisted that he goes back with her because he brought barakah into their life. But now that this happened, they, they started to look, perhaps it's time to, to take him back because they started to fear. So Harima says, I then took him and we took him to his mother. And so Amina said to Halima, why, why did you bring him back now? What has caused you to come now? And initially you were so determined to keep him. That he must remain with you. So Amina was already inquisitive and, and she understood that you wouldn't just bring him back after being so determined to keep him. So Halima said, uh, you know, my son, my own son has now grown by the will of Allah. And I also have fulfilled my obligation that was upon me in raising your son. And I also fear that some accident might happen to him. So anything could happen. You know, he's now growing up. And this is why I brought him back. And this is also what you are happy with. So Halima is also, you know, giving a good answer to defend herself and as if nothing happened, you know. These are, these are the reasons why we're bringing him back. So Amina said, what's your thing? What's your issue? And tell me the truth. So she also knew as a mother, she knew, you were very determined to keep him. What happened that brought, that made you bring him back now? So Halima said, she refused to leave me alone until I informed her. And so Amina said, did you fear for him regarding the shaitan, that the shaitan would affect him or harm him? So Halima said, naam. Yes, it was to something to do with the shaitan. And so Amina said, kalla, nay. Like no ways. Why? She said, wallahi ma li shaitani alayhi min sabil. She said, by Allah, the shaitan has no way over him. Shaitan has no way to, to harm him. He says, Inna libni la sha'nan. Because my son has something special about him. He is a person of importance. And then he said, so, you, so leave him. Leave him now and, and basically go. So this was the, this, the dialogue that happened between Halima and Amina upon the return of uh, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa to his mother 
Amina. This was at the age of five. Okay? When he reached the age of six, Amina binti Wahb, his mother, she passed away in a place called Al-Abwa, in a place which is referred to as Al-Abwa, in a place called Al-Abwa. What happened was is they were returning back to Mecca after visiting some family in Al-Madina. So they traveled to Medina, went to visit some people, and on their way back to Mecca, they were in Abwa, and Amina passes away. The Prophet ﷺ is now six years old. So Abwa is just outside of Medina. So they were not far actually, they just left about 20 odd kilometers or miles outside of Medina. They reached Abwa, and Amina passes away. This was when he was six years old. The same is said by Ibn uh, Kathir that he was at the age of six when this happened. Um, the Sheikh then mentions the visitation of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to the qabr of his mother. That he used to visit the, the grave of his mother in, in Al-Abwa. So he mentions a hadith in Sahih Muslim which is narrated from Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu who said Zara nabiyyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qabra ummihi fabaka He said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he visited the grave of his mother and he cried Wa man hawlahu and all those who were with him and around him started to cry as well and then he said Ista'adhantu rabbi and astaghfir li ummi falam ya'dhan li He then says I sought permission from my lord to seek forgiveness for my mother but he did not permit me Wasta'adhantuhu an azura qabraha and then I sought permission from him to visit her qabr her grave fa'adhina li and so he permitted this So what he's saying was is I asked Allah for permission to seek forgiveness for my mother and Allah never permitted this and then I asked him for permission to visit her grave and he permitted this this is what caused him to obviously cry as he's standing by her qabr visiting her thinking about her he was unable to ask Allah to forgive her and so he started to cry and those around him also cried by looking at him in the hadith in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad with an authentic kind of narration from Burayda ibn al-Husayb radiallahu anhu, he said that we were with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallama and he said we were approximately 1,000 riders. So we stopped and we prayed two raka'at. Then he turned to us. He stopped, sorry, and he prayed two raka'at and he turned to face us. وَعَيْنَاهُ تَذْرِفَانِ and his eyes were overflowing with tears. فَقَامَ إِلَيْهُ عُمْرَ بِالْخَطَّابِ And so Umar ibn Khattab stood up and he went to him. And he says, فَفَدَّاهُ بِالْأَبِ وَالْأُمِّ May our mothers and fathers be sacrificed for you. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, ma lak? Oh, Messenger of Allah, what's wrong? And so he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, إِنِّي سَأَلْتُ رَبِّي فِي الْإِسْتِغْفَارِ لِأُمِّي فَلَمْ يَأْذَنْ لِي He says, I indeed I asked my Lord for forgiveness for my mother 
or for me to ask forgiveness for my mother and he did not permit me. فَدَمَعَتْ عَيْنَايَ رَحْمَةً لَهَا مِنَ النَّارِ And then my, he says, my eyes were overflowing with tears. My eyes over, started to overflow with tears, which was a mercy for her from the fire. Which was a, these tears that are flowing from my eyes will be a mercy for her from the fire. So these two ahadith, they teach us that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to visit the grave of his mother. And obviously this happened later on, when he was a, already a prophet of Allah. This is many years later, he's already a prophet of Allah. But he was unable to ask for forgiveness. Why is this? Because they did not die upon Islam. Because his mother did not die upon Islam. And perhaps we will go through the, the other ahadith where people came to him and said, Can I make dua for my father? And the Prophet said, No. The man walked away upset and, and, and you know, sad. And the Rasulullah then said to him, You and I both. I too cannot make dua for my own father. Because they did not die upon Islam. They were upon a different religion. They were people who worshipped idols. As we saw, speaking about the days of Jahiliyyah, we spoke about. We spoke about idols in the Kaaba. We spoke about things that they used to do. Right? Divination and the arrows and all these things that we saw from the stories of Abdul Muttalib. This was their belief system. Which proves that they were not upon Tawheed. They were not upon Tawheed. And so this is the reason why if you look at any book of Sirah, for example, when we speak about Aminah, we don't say radiallahu anha. It's not written in the book. We say an Abi Hurairah radiallahu an Sahabi. So we say Aisha, Fatima radiallahu anha. Sahabiyat, wives of the Prophet daughter of the Prophet They were Muslimat. When we speak about Amina, there's nothing written next to her name. No rahimahullah, no radiallahu anha. And it's for this reason. And this is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was also not permitted to seek forgiveness for her. Understand? The story of Ibrahim and, 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 and in the Quran. He said, I will seek forgiveness for you, for, to his father. And then Allah had to rectify him and say, you cannot speak, seek forgiveness for your father who was a mushrik. He was upon disbelief. Wallahu musta'an. And so this is something that is very difficult for any person to see if their family member upon disbelief. And especially in today's day and age, well, not only today, but in all times, the revert Muslim, this is one of the hardest things for them to accept, is that their family members, their mother and their father, who do not want to accept, it becomes a great trial for them. Wallahu musta'an. And here we see even Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, afterwards, this was a, a, a trial for him as well, that he too had to, um, you know, deal with. And so for us, who have been born Muslim, and our families are Muslim, and our parents are Muslim, we need to realize the great favor upon us. We need to realize how Allah has actually blessed us, that He hasn't given us that trial. That knowing that you can still make dua, your mother has passed away, you can make dua for her anytime. You can do sadaqah on her behalf, sadaqatul jariyah. You can make hajj on her behalf if she didn't make hajj, for example. There's so much that you can actually do. There are others who love their mother and father just like you love your mother and father, but they cannot say, Ya Allah, forgive her. Ya Allah, forgive him. Because 
they were not upon Tawheed. Wallahu al-musta'an. Um, so we move on to the next topic, which is the kafala of the grand of his grandfather Abdul Muttalib. Kafala to Jaddihi Abdul Muttalib, which basically refers to the guardianship of his grandfather Abdul Muttalib. The guardianship of his grandfather Abdul Muttalib. So when Amina Binti Wahab, the mother of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when she passed away, Ummu Ayman then returned with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to Mecca. So Ummu Ayman then returned with him to Mecca. Um, فَضَمَّهُ وَكَفَلَهُ جَدُّهُ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ Abdul Al-Muttalib then embraced him and took over his guardianship and he showed him compassion and love and a type of gentleness that he did not show to any of his own children. Abdul Muttalib then took care of him, embraced him and took such great care of him and showed him such compassion that he did not even show to his own, his own children. And it is said that he used to keep him close to him. He was always kept close to him. If he was, in, 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 uh, if he was by himself, Abdul Muttalib would accompany him. He would sit with him. If he was sleeping, Abdul, Abdul Muttalib would go and check up on him. And likewise, he was able to accompany Abdul Muttalib at any time, at any place. This was the honor Abdul Muttalib gave to him. And he would not even eat any meal except that he would say, My son, where is my son? Referring obviously to his grandson, my son, and he would be brought, Prasad would be brought to him and he would eat with him. So there was a special bond that he had with his grandson of his. And remember what we said, the father of the Prophet was Abdullah, was the favorite son of Abdul Muttalib. So this was his favorite son, his favorite son's son. Right? This was his grandson from his favorite son. So this was truly the apple of his eye. And now when his father passed away and his mother passes away, this is, you know, more reason for him to really hold him close and to embrace him and so forth. In fact, there's a story that shows this love that he had for the Prophet ﷺ, which is narrated in the, the Mustadrak of Imam Hakim, with an authentic narration from Kindir ibn Sa'id, from his father, who said, Hajjajtu fil jahiliya. So this man, he says, I performed hajj in the days of jahiliya. And there was a man who was making tawaf. There was a man who was making tawaf. And this man was reciting in the tawaf. He was saying, Rabbi rudda ilayya raqibi muhammada ruddahu ilayya wastani indi yada. Which basically means, Rabbi my Lord, return to me. My son Muhammad, return him to me. And... Um, Return him to me and make him a means of benefit and, and favor upon me. This is what he was saying in the tawaf. So this man says, who is this that's saying this in the tawaf? You know, what is he saying? Who is this that's saying these words in the tawaf? So it was who? Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim. He says it was Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim. What, what was happening? Abdul Muttalib sent his grandson Muhammad to go and find some camels for him. Whether it was to purchase a camel, whether it was to find uh, or to get some camels back of his, Allah knows best. But he sent him to find a, a camel for them. 
and he did not send him on any job or any task or any mission except that he was he would fulfill it this is how the prophet was any job his uncle his grandfather asked him to do any little task to do he would fulfill it perfectly but this one he was slightly delayed something was happening he wasn't coming back and abdul muttalib couldn't wait any longer for him to return in this camel and what's happening he was restless restless and when he came as soon as he finally came he embraced him abdul muttalib you know he grabs him and he embraces him and he says ya bunayya oh my beloved son indeed i felt such worry and stress and anxiety for you that i never felt for any person before you for anything before you he wasn't he didn't go to battle he didn't go anywhere dangerous he's in mecca they both in mecca they're from mecca he went to look for a camel for him you could say it's a simple task but just the fact that he was delayed Abdul Muttalib became so stressed out and so worried that he says, I never felt this type of anxiety for anything else before you. And so what happened? He says, Wallahi, I will never send you on any task again. You will never leave my side after this again. This was the type of care that he had for Rasulullah In fact, another incident is when he would sit on the bed of Abdul Muttalib. Remember Abdul Muttalib, we spoke about this. He is of the elite of the Quraysh. He is of the elite of the Quraysh. So, there was a bed, a type of bed that was laid out for him next to the Kaaba, in the shade of the Kaaba. So the sun is shining, the shade there next to the Kaaba, there was a, a special bed placed for Abdul Muttalib. And his children would come and sit around this bed, waiting for him to come, you know, to the bed and so forth. But nobody was Nobody would sit on the bed out of honor and respect for Abdul Muttalib. But Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would come as a youngster and he would sit on the bed. Right? And then his uncles would come. So the brothers of Abdul Muttalib or the brothers of his father, sorry. The sons of Abdul Muttalib who are the uncles of the Prophet would come and they would take him. Say, hey, nobody sits on his bed. On the old man's bed. You know? Sit on the floor. And then Abdul Muttalib would come and say, leave my son to sit. These are his own sons that were removing there. But leave my son to sit. But wallahi, inna lahu By Allah, there is something special about him. There is some importance about him. And then he would put him on his bed with him. And he would sit, they, they would sit together on the bed whilst everyone else would sit around them. And he would rub his back with his hands. And this would, you know, bring... Happiness to the Prophet and happiness to Abdul Muttalib and so forth. This was the closeness that they had. He had this compassion for him that he did not even have for his own sons. Okay. So this is now from the age of six, seven. When the Prophet reaches the age of eight, Abdul Muttalib passes away. Abdul Muttalib, his grandfather, his beloved grandfather, passes away. Hafid ibn Kathir, he said that... He was in the guardianship of his, his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, up until he passed away. And at that time, he was eight years old. He was eight years old. And Ibn Qayyim says the same thing as well, that he was eight years old. What then happens is, 
kafalatu Abi Talibin lil-Nabi. Abdul Muttalib instructed his son Abu Talib. Abu Talib with the guardianship of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and you know the preservation and the care. You are the other one who needs to take care of Muhammad. Why was this? Because Abu Ta- out of all the sons, Abu Talib was the shaqiq of who? Abdullah. Meaning, he was the full brother of Abdullah. Meaning, they had the same mother. Remember, we spoke about the, the different sons that he had and who the mothers were. Abu Talib's mother and Abdullah, they came from the same mother. So that was his real brother, not his half-brother, basically. His full brother. Okay? The mother was who? Fatima. Fatima bint Amr ibn Aid. So Fatima was the one of the wives of Abdul Muttalib. And her sons was, from her sons were Abdullah and Abu Talib. Abdullah and Abu Talib. It's an easy one to remember because the Prophet names his daughter Fatima later on. So this was his grandmother's name. His grandmother was also Fatima. Okay? So Abu Talib then, he now takes the son, his brothers, his full brother, Abdullah, his son, and he now takes over his guardianship. And he now looks after him. Again, in the best possible way. He looks after him better than his own. His own. He's closer to the son. He loves him. There's something special about the Prophet It's not strange that this was happening. There was something special about him. So, they all embraced him. They loved him and they cared for him better than they cared for their own children. Um... <clears throat> So there's an incident that happened where they traveled to Sham together. Where the Prophet ﷺ, he traveled to Sham with his uncle Abu Talib. This hadith is in At-Tirmidhi. This hadith is in At-Tirmidhi in his jami' from Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu. He said that Abu Talib left to Sham and he, with him was the Prophet ﷺ, and some old men of the Quraysh, some shuyukh, ashyakh, some old men of the Quraysh. And then they reached a, a monk. They reached a monk who was Bahira. His name was Bahira. When this happened, Habatu, they stopped over. They stopped at this monk. And they set up the tents. They set up their tents, and then the monk came to them. This monk, he came to them. First of all, some scholars mentioned that Bahira was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Jewish rabbi, okay? Although Ibn Kathir says this is incorrect, rather he was a, a priest. He was a Christian priest. So Bahira was a, a Christian priest as mentioned by Ibn Kathir in Bidaya wa Nihaya. So this Christian priest, Bahira, then comes to them. But the narrator says that before this would happen, or before this, this never would happen. Meaning, they had to pass by Bahira. He never came out to them, nor did he even turn and pay them any attention. Understand? When they came to this place where he was, and he was known to be there, they had to approach him. He never came out to them. He never was to bother with them. But this time when they stopped, what happened? He comes out to them. And he says, 
whilst they are setting up their tents. And this is whether he comes out walking to them amidst them until he takes the hand of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he says, هذا سيد العالمين This is the master of the alameen. We know what alameen, right? We should know this word by now. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, the Lord of all that exists. This is the master of all that exists. هذا رسول Rabbil Alameen. This is the messenger of the alameen. Or the messenger of the Lord of the alameen. The messenger of Allah. And Allah sent him as a mercy for the alameen, for all that exists. And so these old men of the Quraysh said to him, Ma'ilmuk. What do you know? Yani, what do you know about him? So he says, um, Indeed, you came along the road as you were coming along this road towards, towards us, you know, towards this place that we are in. There was no tree nor any stone except that it fell down in prostration. Except that it fall, fell down in prostration. And it will not prostrate except for a prophet. It will not prostrate except for a, a prophet. And I also know and I recognize him from the seal of prophethood, which is below his left shoulder blade, like an apple. Mithrat tufaha. Something like an apple. Again, different descriptions that different people have given to this seal of prophethood. Then Bahira goes back and he makes them some food. He prepares them some food. He then brings them some food. When he brings them the food, when he brings them the food, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is busy tending to some of the camels. Right? And then Bahira says, Arsilu ilay, send for him. Yani where is he? Bring him. And as he comes, There's a cloud upon him that is shading him. There's a cloud above his head that's shading him. And as he comes closer to the people, he finds that all of them have beaten him uh, to, the, to the shade of the trees that they had. Right? So when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sits, the shade of the tree leans over to him. So all the people are sitting in the shade. He comes, there's no space in the shade. As he sits, that shade then shifts over to shade him. And so Bahira says, look at the shade of this tree. It's leaning over towards him. And then he says, um, whilst he's standing up, he then starts to speak to these people, to the Quraysh and Abu Talib and so forth. He says, don't go to Rome, to Rome. Do not go there. Because if they find out about this boy and they know about him, they know about his descriptions, they are going to kill him. So go back and do not carry on on this path that you are on. And as he's saying this, seven men approach them, Romans. Seven Romans approach them, and Abu Bahira turns around and says to them, why have you come? What, what, what are you doing here all of a sudden? So they say, we came because a prophet is going to come and appear in this month. And there's no tariq left, there's no pathway left except that the people have sent us here. All the people have sent us to this road. So we've come to this road, and this is why we are here. And so Bahira says, is there anybody behind you that's better than you? I mean, is there anybody that some general or something that has sent you, that's with you? So they said, no, we were just informed about this pathway, and this is where we have reached. 
And so Bahira says to them, do you realize that if there's anything or any matter which Allah wants to bring about, which Allah wants to bring forth, is there anybody who can turn that matter away? Is there anybody that can prevent this from happening? So they said no. This was his da'wah to them. As if to say, this is a prophet. If Allah wants the prophet to, to come through, there's nobody that's going to stop it. So rather instead of coming to harm him or do anything, go on your way or join him or so forth. So what happens is, فَبَايَعُوهُ They then pledge their allegiance to him and they stay with him. <clears throat> Again, Bahira then stands up and he continues, encourage, continues to encourage the people and he asks, who is his wali? Is he still a youngster? Who is his, his, where is his guardian? And so Abu Talib obviously eventually stands up and says, it's me. And then he encourages Abu Talib severely to go back. Go back, don't go on this path. You are going to reach some harm upon this, this youngster. And they eventually return. This journey is now cut short and they have to go back to Makkah. Right? Then the narration says in At-Tirmidhi, that he sent with him Abu Bakr and Bilal radiallahu anhuma, and then this priest Bahira he prepared for them some bread and some oil and some olives and so forth and they were sent on their way right however the scholars differed over this narration greatly why for many reasons right some said it's Hassan like a Tirmidhi himself said it's a Hassan hadith Others said it's authentic, like Al-Hafidh ibn Kathir, like Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, Al-Hakim and Al-Bani. They said the hadith is authentic. Okay? However, there is a different narration that doesn't mention that part at the end about Abu Bakr and Bilal because that's a problematic issue. At this point in time, Abu Bakr is younger than the Prophet by two and a half years. He's a young boy over here, which means Abu Bakr is five years old when this is happening. Bilal radiallahu anhu is probably not even born yet because Bilal is only freed after prophethood by Abu Bakr. So this makes no sense that this is added in. So what they say is perhaps there was some confusion about the end of the hadith because there's other narrations that don't mention this ending of the hadith about sending him back with Bilal and with Abu Bakr and so forth. So, we would say that part of the hadith is definitely a problematic part of the hadith, but many of the other details of the hadith seems to be authentic and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Right? The same was mentioned by Ibn Ishaq in his book of Sirah. He, he mentions the story, right? but without a, a sanad. Um, there are other issues with the hadith that al Dhabi has mentioned. For example, he says, doesn't add up. He says, why would the tree's shade have to cover him if the cloud was on top of him? Do you understand? So he had other issues of the hadith. He says, doesn't add up. The Abu Bakr issue, the Bilal issue, and so forth. Allah knows best. But um, many of the scholars have authenticated the hadith irrespective. Like Al-Bani, like Ibn Hajar, like Ibn, um, Ibn Kathir, and others, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. طيب. The next issue is that he used to be a shepherd for flock and for some cattle and so forth. Right? Abu Talib was known to be a poor man. As opposed to his, his father, Abdul Muttalib, Abu Talib was not a wealthy man. 
And so what happened was is when he took over the guardianship of the Prophet Sallallahu Abu Talib, the Prophet then had to go and find work. And he would go out and work as a shepherd for some of the people in Mecca. And by this, he sets a great standard for a youngster who earns money, who, who, who exerts himself, tires himself out by earning money. In a hadith in Bukhari, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, مَا بَعَثَ اللَّهُ نَبِيًّا إِلَّا رَعَ الْغَنَمِ that Allah Azza wa did not send a prophet except that he was a, a shepherd. Except that he was a shepherd. And so his companion said, Wa anta? And what about you? And he said, Naam. I used to be a shepherd. Ala qarariti li ahli Makkah. For some money. For some dirhams and dinar for the people of Makkah. So even me, as, as a youngster, I too was a, was a shepherd. In another hadith, also in Bukhari, in Adab al-Mufrad, he narrates that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Bu'itha Musa, wa huwa ra'i ghanam. Musa alayhi salam was sent, whilst he was a, a shepherd. Wa bu'itha Dawood, wa huwa ra'i ghanam. Dawood the same, he was a shepherd. Wa bu'ithu ana, and I was sent, wa ana ar'a ghanaman li ahli bi ajyad. And I too, he was a, a, a shepherd, for some people or for my family in the mountains of Mecca. That's for my people in the mountains of, of Mecca. Tayyib, what's the hikmah in this? What's the hikmah in all of the prophets being sent as shepherds? Right? A number of things. Number one is, this is a, 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 an exercise for them. That they go through these difficulties that the shepherd goes through and it prepares them. Uh, for what's going to come. It instills within them certain qualities that's going to benefit them as leaders of people in the future. Some, to summarize it, there has to be some type of compassion that you have to your animals. Some forbearance, some patience that you learn. Right? When they come together, when they split apart, patience is required to move them around from one area to another. Patience is required to defend them from either wild animals or from thieves and so forth. Patience is required. Different animals interact differently. They have different ways about them. Some sheep, we see Qurban time, passive sheep, that sheep is known, he's aggressive, he's a bit wild. The, the Ra'i al-Ghanam, the shepherd needs to be able to deal with all of this at the same time. Um, the special care that they need and so forth. So once he... Yani a shepherd then would learn these type of qualities, which is all praiseworthy qualities. And this was set up for them, especially these Ambiya, so that when they become prophets in the future, they have these special qualities with them that will benefit them. As leaders of people, people are different. You got to deal with them. They come together, then they have issues. You have to defend them. Then it's patience, then it's forbearance, then it's compassion and kindness. All of these things that it has to be found within a a shepherd was also then found within the prophets later on, which they learned through being a shepherd. This is one of the major or main hikmas in Allah Azzawajal sending the prophets as shepherds initially and then them growing on to um, being, becoming leaders and prophets. Another benefit is that the wealth that is earned from a shepherd is earned purely by his own hand. 
right? It's his own earning that he does physically, that he earns. And this, as mentioned in hadith, is the best of earnings. Right? The hadith in Bukhari says that no person eats food that is better than what he eats from his own earnings, from the earning of his own hand. And then the Prophet said that the, the, the Prophet of Allah, Dawood would eat from the earning of his own hand. Understand? So this doesn't apply to anybody better than a shepherd who's out working, toiling by himself, earning from his own hands. Right? Not from the hands of anybody else. Not, not via any other way. From his own, um, his own hand. And why does the hadith mention Dawood? Specifically Dawood in this hadith. They were all shepherds. All the prophets were shepherds. But why Dawood? Because Dawood was a king. Dawood was a king. He didn't need to be a shepherd. He didn't need to work. He could have got wealth and food from any, everywhere else. But he still did it and he still earned that, own ma- that, that, that food from the, from the work of his own hand. This is why the hadith specif- specifies the, the mention of um, Dawood alayhi. So this hadith teaches us the virtue of working for, your, for yourself and to earn money for yourself and to eat from that as opposed to eating from, from others and off, off, off of others um, and so forth. Two more issues we'll touch on, which is two brief issues. Number one is Shuhudun Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallama harb al-fijar. In this time period, what happened was is he witnessed a war, the Battle of Fijar. He witnessed a battle of, called the Battle of Fijar. This was when he was 15 years old. He was 15 years old. Some have said 20 years old. Right? This battle was between the Quraysh and with them was Kinana. We spoke about Kinana before. Quraysh and Kinana on one side versus Qais. Qais and their allies. So you got Quraysh and Kinana versus Qais and their allies. And the leader of the Quraysh was Harb ibn Umayyah. Harb ibn Umayyah. And it is said that initially Qais was winning this war until later on the Quraysh came and started to win this war. The Prophet was part of this battle for some days. Although what he used to do was is he used to prepare the arrows to be shot. That was his duty in this battle. He used to prepare the, the arrows to be shot in this battle of Fijar. Understand? This is something that happened during the time under the guardianship of Abu Talib. This is something that happened within this period. The last thing that happened before we stop for the, for the, for the night is he witnessed Hilf al-Fudul. He witnessed the alliance of Fudul, which is the alliance of the, of the virtuous. Right? And this was one of the most noble things that happened amongst the Quraysh in terms of the agreements and in terms of the uh, alliances and so forth. This happened in Dhul Qa'dah after the war of Fijar by one or a few months. One, two, three, four months. Right? Some say one month, some say four months. So after this battle of Fijar in Dhul Qa'dah there was alliance that took place. What happened was is a Yemeni man, right? He came from a place called Zubaid. He came to Mecca with some goods and merchandise. 
and a man by the name of Aas ibn Wa'il. Al-Aas ibn Wa'il came to purchase these goods from him. When he took the goods, he refused to give him his haq. He refused to pay him. And so this Yemeni man, he called on his own alliances and he said, Abduddar, Makhzum, Jumahan, Sahman, Adi ibn Kab, to help him. And they refused to help him. When they saw this man, Al-Wa'il ibn Aas, or Al-Aas ibn Wa'il, they refused to help him. And they actually scolded him out. When this happened, when this Yemeni man saw this evil, he stood up on the mountains and he addressed the Quraysh. And he basically scolded them. And he spoke to them and he, and he addressed them. When this happened, the son of Abdul Muttalib, Zubair, one of the sons of Abdul Muttalib, his name was Zubair, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, he said, we cannot leave this man deserted like this. So they gathered. The Qurayshis gathered. Banu Hashim, Zuhra, Banu Taym. They gathered in the house of Abdullah ibn Jad'an. And they had a pact that they formed. An agreement. And they took an oath by Allah. That we are going to be the hand of justice. We are going to be the hand of justice. Any person that's oppressed, we are going to help him over the oppressor. Until he gets his haqq. This is what they agreed. And this is what was known as the Hilf al-Fudul, which was the alliance with the agreement of the virtuous. Right? So what they did was is, um, they went to this man, Aas ibn Wa'il, took his haqq, or took the haqq of the Yemeni man and returned it to him. Took the haqq of the Yemeni man and they returned it to him. Right? The Prophet ﷺ was... As we said, 15 to 20 years old at this time. This was just after the Harbul Fijar, after that, the, that, that battle that took place. And he speaks about this in at least two hadith. He speaks about this agreement in two hadith. And he says that I witnessed in the house of Abdullah ibn Jad'an. That, that pact that took place, I witnessed it. And he says, um, had... I been in, had the Muslims in Islam been invited to this, we would have accepted it. Understand? That was an honorable and noble thing that, that, they, that they did to stand for the oppressed and so forth. In one more hadith, in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, he said, Shahidtu hilf al-mutayyibin ma'a'umumati. I witnessed the alliance of the mutayyibin. The mutayyibin. This refers to the, the virtuous ones that took over that uh, that, 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 that formed this agreement with my uncles and I was a young boy, he says. He says, فَمَا أُحِبَّ أَنَّ أَنْكُثُهُ And he says, I would not want to break that hilf, that agreement, not even for red camels. And as we know, red camels was the, the greatest commodity and the most expensive commodity that they had. So the Prophet says later on, as a prophet, he says, I wouldn't want to break that type of allegiance or alliance not even for, for red camels. And I witnessed this, he says. I was in the house when they formed this. I was with my uncles when they formed this pact, this agreement, this hilf al-fudul. So this also happened during the, the time of, that where he was under the guardianship of Abu Talib. So we've spoken today about the splitting of the chest. We've spoken about the seal of prophethood. We described it from authentic hadith. We then spoke about the the return to his mother and the death of his mother. 
and the issue of him visiting the qabr of his mother but not being allowed to make dua for her we then spoke about the death of his mother and Abdul Muttalib taking over looking after him his great love that he had for him then Abu Talib and we are still basically in this period of, Ab- of Abu Talib next week inshallah we will continue from um, him going out to do business with Khadija and then getting married to Khadija radiallahu anha that will be the next topic coming up next week inshallah wa sallallahu ala nabina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik shahidu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk